Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. Over the last few episodes, I've been trying to highlight the issues surrounding breast cancer and the menopause. I think a lot of us are totally unaware, I know I was, that treatment for cancer and some drugs taken to stop recurrence can send you into an immediate and often premature menopause. So I'm talking to the wonderful Danny Binnington, founder of a not-for-profit organisation and podcast called Menopause and Cancer. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Hello. How are you today, India? I'm very well. How are you? I'm all right. I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your story? Yeah, of course. And I'm so glad you're picking up this subject because over the last few years, as you will know, the menopause conversation has been booming, hasn't it? And it's on everyone's lips. HRT is on everyone's lips. We know so much more about our treatment options. We have doctors on social media that are really educating, informing people campaigning in front of the Houses of Parliaments, amazing people doing so much good stuff. And people like myself and the women in my community have loved the conversation, but we didn't really quite feel part of it because in the detail, we don't always feel spoken about. And the treatment options that are available for everyone going through menopause naturally perhaps aren't an option for us. And so we felt a little bit on the outside. And so I'm really glad you're talking about this and having me on the podcast. It's a really important subject. Yeah. And also, I think we really want to be all inclusive and everyone should talk about the menopause, whether you're a child, a man, a woman, whether you've had a history of cancer or not. And the more we can really learn about each other and our different experiences, the more we can then think, actually, everyone is so different and there is no right or wrong. I was only 33 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and it felt like it jumped a generation. It felt I was a generation too young to having had a cancer diagnosis. My own kids were only, the twins were two and my eldest daughter was four. And so it felt we were just getting through the horrendous sleepless nights. In fact, they still weren't sleeping. Yeah. But it felt like life was getting a little bit easier. I could see them starting preschool and maybe... Getting a bit of life back. Yeah, a bit more time for a shower and a bit of... <laughs> yeah, cup of hot tea. Yeah, and I found my lump. And the first time I was going through menopause was actually a temporary menopause. I just didn't know it then. My period stopped because of chemotherapy. Right. So you did chemo straight away because yours was triple negative breast cancer. Am I right? That's right. So different cancers. Mine was a cancer that wasn't driven by hormones. It didn't have estrogen, progesterone receptor positive markers as such. And so I had surgeries, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. That was my treatment. And... 
I don't know whether my doctors told me that my periods can stop. I think they did, but I didn't know it was menopause. So it, it was just for me a side effect of my cancer treatment. And that was that. And presumably you're taking on so much information at that point. Right. I mean, that must be a terrifying time in your life that someone says, oh, and your periods will stop. You go, oh, right. OK, yeah, well, I'm battling cancer. I don't care about my periods. You don't realise the added horror of that. And it was just one of those things. After I had my cancer diagnosis, it felt as if I was put on a treadmill and I couldn't get off. There was no off button. There was no way out. And I was just on it. And we did as I was told. We followed the doctor's instructions. We had letters through the post with my appointments. And I just did as I was told. Very little thinking went in it. I was just firefighting, trying to survive and just trying to get through the day, really. You said you went into a temporary menopause. So the chemo shuts down your ovaries. Is that what happened? Yeah. And doctors don't usually know if your periods are going to come back or not. And so I speak with many of the women in my community. They say, well, my periods stop because of chemotherapy. Will they come back? My doctor didn't really quite know. And doctors don't always know because we don't know if periods will come back. Mine did come back. And so I found myself having periods again a few months after chemotherapy stopped. What symptoms were you having at that time? I don't know, India, because I had so many symptoms of managing the side effects of chemotherapy. And many are the same. Fatigue, not being able to sleep, anxiety, palpitations, joint ache, body pains. So there's so many symptoms that were the same. Hot flushes, night sweats. I think at one point I was really worried that my night sweats and hot flushes could mean my cancer is back or there is more cancer. And so I wonder whether maybe some clarification would have helped just put my mind at ease. And so I could just remember being really quite confused about the symptoms. But because chemotherapy plays such havoc, it's so much poison, isn't it, for your body. And so what surgery did you have? Yeah, so I had uh, initial lumpectomy and I had all of my lymph nodes removed in my left armpit. So that was quite a big surgery for me, actually. And then two years later, I had a double mastectomy to prevent not just my cancer coming back, but more cancers. Because in the process of going through treatment, my doctors found out I had the BRCA genetic mutation. And people at home might remember the Angelina Jolie gene. We talked about it in the press and it was exactly at that time. And I thought, wow, Angelina Jolie talks about this and I've got it. Because when I was first diagnosed, it felt like no one knew what it was. No one in our family knew there was a genetic mutation. I'd never heard about it from anyone else. And suddenly there was this superstar. And I always knew, well, Angelina Jolie, who I don't know and will never meet, can help me in how I communicate this with my family and doctors, then I want to be outspoken to. And so I've been quite open about my journey because I know it can help someone else, even if it helps them communicate better. And so after that double mastectomy, I then had my ovarian tubes removed to reduce my risks of ovarian cancer, which comes with a genetic mutation. And two years after that, I chose to have my ovaries removed. Wow. That's a long process. That's six years or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Five years. Yeah. And was this something that your family, is your mother still alive? Have you got sisters? Was this a maternal line that they knew about? Has it informed them? For anyone listening out there, it's really important to say that hereditary breast cancers are very, very few. We've only got a few percent of all breast cancers that are hereditary. And even if you've got a mother, for example, and an aunt who've both been diagnosed with breast cancer, it doesn't mean that you necessarily need genetic testing. You can speak to your GP, but more 
detail and more information needs to go into that pot to evaluate whether genetic testing might be helpful for you. For us, we had a very strong link of ovarian cancer on my dad's side. And every woman on my dad's side passed before she even turned 55 from ovarian cancer. And so this information gap that I felt very much was present in my family. Many doctors said, have you got history of cancer in your family? This never picked up for me that I might be at risk. I kind of always thought I'm fine because it was on my dad's side. And so I had a long time to prepare for it. And with that time, I was able to put my house back in order a little bit after breast cancer to feed my toolbox, to get myself ready for what surgical menopause with a history of cancer would mean for me. And were you more informed when you decided to have your ovaries removed and your, was it fallopian tubes, did you say, removed? Were you more informed as to what was going to happen, that that was going to be a medical menopause that was going to hit you hard? I remember when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, there was this one appointment where I sat in front of the doctor with my dad and my husband came to the appointment. Well, actually, they sat in front of the doctor and I sat on the side. So as a patient, I couldn't even be part of my own conversations with my doctors because I was so traumatised, so worried that I would die, so worried about any answers I might receive. I couldn't be part of that conversation. I was a totally traumatised patient, really. And also you need other people there to take the information in, don't you? You can't be expected to come away and say, oh yes, I remember it's hard enough anyway. But when you're dealing with that sort of emotion. And everyone is so different, but I just remember feeling so almost mute and not being able to actively take part in my cancer journey and recovery in that very early phase. And when I was then planning for my surgically onset menopause, it was a total opposite experience. I remember going up to the hospital I'd chosen. So I chose the hospital for my surgeon who was going to remove my ovaries. I had many menopause specialist appointments before that so that someone could help me how to manage my menopause after. I made sure I changed my surgery date twice because I really wanted to make sure I had that menopause specialist appointment beforehand. That's brilliant. Was that given to you? All self-advocacy because by then... I really knew what I was embarking on. I had met people like Diane Dansenbrink, who I know you've spoken to for your podcast, come and run workshops for me, for me and my community of women. I'd already been working in the wellness industry, run loads of workshops and events. And when I clicked that this was going to be a big deal, surgically onset menopause with a history of cancer, I knew I had to do everything to learn as much as possible about it. So you'd already started with your podcast and things like that, had you by then? Not the podcast, but I'd run plenty of workshops, events, absolutely, yeah. And really, that is a two-pronged approach. I knew I had to become active myself every single day in how I eat, how I move. We'll get to all of that, all the things we can do every day. But also, we do need the help and support and information from our medical team. And it's bringing those two together that we can feel empowered. And empowered doesn't mean symptom-free, but it means knowing what our options are. And I felt very much the empowered patient embarking on my surgically onset menopause. And that doesn't mean easy and that the decisions were easy, but I felt I knew what I needed to know to make decisions. That's amazing because I have to say it's a scary percentage of women who say they didn't get any menopause help after cancer. You got specialist help, but was that something that you had to really push for because you were, as you say, empowered enough to say, this is what I want? 
Yeah, and it shouldn't be that way. No, it should be there for the person who's in the corner, not able to speak for themselves because they're in such trauma like you to begin with. Because if I had been that patient from a few years prior, I could have not been the person to self-advocate for myself or to research or to know where to go for information. It was only possible for me because I was a few years on from my initial cancer diagnosis and I was in a different space and I was actively able to plan forward. But I work with many women now who have been pushed into surgically onset menopause without any help of how to manage. Many women are told they can't have hormone replacement therapy because of the type of their cancer and they're not given any other options. We know so many people never have the conversation with their oncologists or their clinical nurse specialists. And so people often say to me, Danny, managing menopause after cancer is harder than going through chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery all together. And it goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop. At least with chemo, we think, oh, if I get through those 12 or however many rounds, there might be an end to it. With this menopause malarkey, it goes on. It's exhausting. The menopause without cancer is exhausting enough, but the idea of adding that on top, hats off to you, you're amazing. And I love the fact that you got empowered enough to take control. So where are you in your cancer journey? So I've celebrated 10 years since my initial diagnosis, which is absolutely amazing. Initially, I always thought, gosh, will I see my kids start school? Will I see them walk through the gates on their first day of school? And now I've got pictures and they're there in their little blue and white little checkered dresses hanging off the gates like little monkeys. And I watched them start senior school and I was there for so many amazing moments. And looking back, I sometimes think, was I even there? So much of my post-cancer life was very much fueled by anxiety. And I sometimes look back thinking, gosh, I don't think I was very present a lot of the times because I was anxious and worried and so worried for my future. But it is what it is and you can only do your best. And you're here and you're healthy and you look amazing. So are you now all clear? Have you been given an all clear or does it not work like that? I know I always wanted it all clear. I wanted to walk into my oncologist and get the big badge and say you're done and and that is it. And you haven't got to worry about it anymore. We know with many types of cancer, it doesn't quite work like that. And oncologists don't like to use those words. And some cancers like to rear their head many 10, 20, 30 years after. And it's really important to know there is only so much we can do for years after my cancer diagnosis. I wanted to control everything that was possible. But I do know I can't control it all. And the best of people that have the best of lifestyle get cancer and pass away from cancer. And so I'm very aware of that. And yet I have many days where I'm clinging on to my toolkit to think I need to do my best. And it's still a conscious effort to stay away from cancer, to live a healthy life. And so it's with me. Like, I don't think I shake it. Is it always there in the back of your mind? It must always be. In different ways, in different forms. And I have many weeks where I forget about it. And yeah, and then you get a niggle and I think, oh, is that it? And so there is uncertainty and maybe the trust in my body is definitely different to what it was before. You said recently that you had a recurrence in what you thought were cancer symptoms. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, and my husband will laugh because he'll say to you now, India, Danny had these symptoms for the last 10 years on and off. Not always, but on and off. And I think one of the really difficult things for me was to learn what is normal, what is being human. Do we all get aches and pains and maybe headaches for longer periods of time? And when was my body kicking into immediate 
fight or flight, this is it, my cancer is back. And I'm still learning. And many people I speak to, we all have such different stories and different experiences, but this is a really common symptom that many of us worry about. But this incident you're referring to, I went to my GP, I didn't think anything of it, and he immediately referred me for a brain MRI. And so that was really, really scary. And it was Christmas and these things take a long time. And so I think over and over again, have I been brought back into states of being extremely humble and very much aware of my own mortality. And was it headaches then? It was very strange symptoms and numbness in my body and tingling in my body. And so I did the right thing. I had it all checked out. And often when sort of my mental health brings me to my knees, I'm the most aware of how precious life is and the most grateful for the little things in life. And I write the most amazing poems. I then share in yoga. And so there are good things (laughs) as well. But times can be tough. And what are you doing or taking to help your menopausal symptoms? Do you have menopausal symptoms? Mm. I have the lovely burning tongue syndrome. It does feel like I've scolded my tongue, which is very odd. I have sensitive gums, so definitely some oral changes. I have very itchy skin, especially on my shins. Sometimes I could just peel my skin off and there's very little that seems to help. I've got the achiness in my body. I haven't had hot flushes, actually. So what I did was to prepare for it with all the things I knew I could control every every single day. And in the research I did in preparation for my menopause, I thought, what's my toolbox? And I visualised myself walking around with big buckets. You know, like you get Halloween buckets. I've got my menopause and cancer toolboxes, but they're buckets. And my buckets are full of different things. And each bucket has a different label. And so one bucket is, you have to move. I have to move. I've promised myself I'm going to move. And I will refuse to hear people tell me, I've got to lift weights. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. It's rubbish. I think as long as I move, I know I'm doing my body a service. And so whether some people love yoga, other people love doing weights, other people go for a run or for walks, to me, it doesn't matter. And to me, the more variety, the better. And we also know from amazing research that you can reduce your risks of your cancer recurring by up to 30% if you move 150 minutes a week. Wow. And that's huge. That is enormous. So I've spoken to lots of experts about exercise. And then in my diet bucket, I have spoken to dietitians and nutritionists from all over the world, experts in menopause and cancer. And I've really, really honed into, after I've eaten a very drastic way and I've got so many things wrong, I've really, really ensured that over the last 10 years, my diet is good in general. I eat sweets, I indulge in cakes, I do all of the things a normal person would do. But in general, my main meals are of really good quality. I make sure I have whole grains and lots of fruit and lots of veg every day. And I eat lots of pulses and beans and I have a couple of portions of fish, good olive oils, nuts and seeds, berries. And so that's a big tick. And then also I do know, because we've touched on it, that my mental health, although it is impacted by, say, my gut health and by how much I move, it still needs addressing. And for me, that happens on the yoga mat, in meditation, through counselling, through therapy sessions, through hypnotherapy. Not all at once. No, but, <laughs> it's a busy day. <laughs> but at different times over the last 10 years, I have tried to access different tools and things to help me with my mental health. And that's been crucial, really. And community, to me, being in a community, creating community, 
sharing, listening is so good for my mental health. Yeah, having other women around you and just not feeling alone, that's the key, isn't it? Just going, I feel like that is just so empowering. And then there are also the medical things in my medical buckets and there are non-hormonal, I have a big non-hormonal medical bucket and a hormonal medical bucket in the hormonal medical bucket will be things like vaginal estrogen. That's so many, something like 89% of women who've had cancer who are in menopause will have some symptoms of vaginal dryness, irritation, pain, painful sex. And so that's a really big area that needs addressing and managing and often for life. And personally, because of the type of cancer I've had, because I've had a double mastectomy, because I was five years out from my initial cancer diagnosis, my menopause specialist, oncologist and surgeon were quite happy for me to go on hormone replacement therapy. So I have chosen to try systemic hormone replacement therapy. And I think it's really important because I feel I have had so much help from these amazing menopause specialists attached to the university where I had my surgery. And so all of my doctors could talk to one another. My oncologist was involved, my surgeon was involved. And a woman with a similar diagnosis might never be able to access hormone replacement therapy like I did. There's lots of different factors in my personal story of why I've chosen. And it's really important to also know nothing is forever. And the most important thing that I hear from people is say, my doctor said no to HRT, but I have not had any other options. And I think that's what I'm so passionate about is there are many other options to HRT that doctors can prescribe. So for hot flushes, for example, we have venvilofloxacin, gabapentin, oxybutynin. These are other non-hormonal medications that can be used to treat hot flushes. And so it's really important that we tap into this medical bucket and that we find a doctor to help us with these medical solutions because they're there. And as you say, HRT nowadays, I think more and more people are realising that it's not a blanket no for women struggling with their menopause symptoms. There are times when HRT is an option if you want to go down that route. What most women say is they actually quite like to just have the conversation. They want to know why it's not an option for them. And once they've been given the reasons, they're okay with that and they're happy to move on. It's when women aren't being told the exact reasons that we're then on Google at three o'clock in the morning and then they find themselves in Facebook groups. And and that's never a good idea, isn't it? Social media and all of that is never a good idea. I think we need our advice from specialists that know about our personal history and medical history. And I think we all deserve to explore our options. It doesn't mean we have to go and do it, but I feel we need and are allowed the answers. And I think that's what's not always happening. On the British Menopause Society, for example, there is a brilliant little tool. It's called Find a Specialist. And you can tick NHS or you could tick private and a whole list comes up of all the menopause specialists. And so for anyone that has had a cancer diagnosis, their GP or their oncologist, their nurse can refer them to a menopause specialist. And even if you haven't got anyone near you, you can be referred outside of your area. And so this isn't something that's done automatically then. You're not automatically said, and here is your menopause specialist and we will talk to the oncologist at the same time. Sadly not. And for anyone sort of thinking, well, how are the two related if you haven't had a cancer diagnosis? Many cancer treatments, apart from surgery, also push you into menopause. So it could be treatments like tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, could be radiotherapy, 
that they impact your ovaries. But really the oncologist and the surgeon is there to deal with your cancer, right? And then we have the amazing specialist nurses. They're often there to troubleshoot, like in the early days, your severe symptoms. And there aren't always the resources and there isn't a clear pathway to help you with your long-term late effects that could be menopause related. And so I think at the moment, the more we know where we can go for help, the better. Because if we're just going to sit back and wait for someone to tell us where to go in case we have symptoms six months down the line, I don't think it's going to happen. Did you feel that you were slightly caught in the middle of your menopause specialist and your oncologist? Because quite often an oncologist who sees cancer every day might go no, no, no to anything that the menopause specialist might say, well, actually, this is really going to help with your symptoms and the risks are low. Did you feel that they were having a decent conversation with one another or were you piggy in the middle of that? I think as a patient, when you're not just doing how everything else is sort of panned out for you, you're always going to be piggy in the middle. Every week I have women and we have difficulties in making decisions because it's not always clear. And I speak to many doctors, surgeons, oncologists, and they also say we would like more guidance. And it's not always clear what we do with all these subgroups of patients because we're not just talking breast cancer, we're talking all cancers. I speak to many women after bowel cancers. I just spoke to a gorgeous lady on my own podcast the other week. She's in her late 20s. She had blood cancer and she had no help with the symptoms of her menopause. And she was stripped of all her estrogen at the age of 28. And there was absolutely no help, no help with bone health, heart health, brain health. And those are the things I really want to support and challenge. And that's got nothing to do with taking HRT or not. These are all the other things we can do to support our long-term health. But it's critical that someone helps us navigate that and put a toolbox together so that we have a chance of how this life with or without hormones in an early menopause body, how we can do it well, not just with our symptoms, but also in 5, 10, 15 years further down the line. Yeah, and longer than that if you're only 28. Yeah. That's like your whole life ahead of you. You've got to think about bone health and heart health. And And so back to your question, there isn't anyone at the moment in that sort of medical wheel to say, actually, this is what's happening. You're now moved on to a menopause specialist. So in the meantime, going on to the British Menopause Society and asking your doctor to refer you can be helpful. The wait is very long, but we know that. I've been menopause forever now, so it's okay to wait. <laughs> I also think that cancer patients, they should be fast-tracked, should they not? If you're being thrust into an early or medically induced menopause, then that's often a lot harsher and the symptoms are much more pronounced than, say, someone like me who's just sort of slowly creeping into menopause. And so you would hope that the long waits were there for cancer patients, but they obviously are. We have thousands and thousands of women in our community. They join our Facebook group. They come to our in-person workshops at loads of charities. We run programs for charities for young people. Thousands and thousands of women that actually say we've had no help and no support in how we manage menopause after cancer. And I think I don't want to blame any medical professional because I think they're all actually amazing. I just think in general, it hasn't been spoken about enough. And the focus, and rightly so, has been on increasing our survival rates and breast cancer survival rates. And perhaps all of us, right, even in a normal menopause conversation, we haven't spoken about menopause, all of our symptoms. It's only been booming for the last few years, especially in the UK. There's many, so many countries who still don't talk about it like we talk about it here. And so people with a history of cancer were even sort of delayed. And so I think the conversation is being opened now. 
I think there are more women to say, I feel guilty for even moaning because I know I should feel so grateful to be alive. I don't want to add more burden. Just yesterday in a call for one of my Empowered Menopause program group sessions, a lady said, yeah, but my brain fog is really bad and I have got an appointment with my breast care nurse, but is it a bad enough symptom to even bring it up and use that appointment. And this woman has just lost her job because she couldn't hold it down because her brain fog was so bad. But we still have those feelings of it's not life-threatening. And so we have to work on ourselves as patients in what we share, in what we want to communicate and in also voicing what we want. How do we want to live? What's the quality of my life? That's important to me. Exactly. You have stared at the precipice of life-threatening, but then when you're moving forward, not everything needs to be life-threatening for you to actually stick your hand up and go, I'm struggling with this, and it's okay to say I'm struggling with this. And so there are some new drugs that are coming out that could be real game-changers. Neurokinin, is that one? That's an NK3 receptor antagonist. So that's a non-hormonal treatment for the vasomotor symptoms of menopause. Yeah, the hot flushes. And I think what's so brilliant about this is it will start to give us more options because what we want, and there's a fantastic doctor called Dr. Anis Mukherjee. She's written a book called The Complete Guide to the Menopause. She's had breast cancer herself and she really works on putting together this toolkit of all of your options. And this is just another option to add. And it is a non-hormonal drug that's just been approved by the FDA. They are not available in the UK yet, but hopefully by the end of the year. And they target the neurocanine 3 receptor. It sort of is how your brain regulates your body temperature. And it sort of targets that pathway. The most amazing thing about this particular drug is that it works instantly. So people reported relief from their symptoms overnight. They reported few side effects, although it's a very new drug and maybe not quite enough is known. They usually hope to see a benefit of about 30% when they bring a new drug to the market. And they've seen a benefit of over 70% with this new drug. Now, because we're talking about cancer, though, we don't know exactly how safe it's going to be for breast cancer patients or cancer patients, just because it hasn't been researched on this particular group. None of these scientists, researchers, experts think there will be a contraindication. And so people in America are already talking to their doctors about it. But in the UK, it will probably be next year that a few doctors might start using it. But actually, it's hope. It's another thing that we can add alongside the other medications and alongside all of the other things that we can do every single day to support ourselves. And I think, you know, once we sort of make this big rainbow of daily actions, help we get from experts, we suddenly feel there is lots we can do, history of cancer or not. It might be a bit harder to figure out what you can do, what is helpful, but you all know HRT isn't amazing for everyone. So many people go on it and they come off it because it hasn't done for them what they were hoping for it to do. And so I think we bear that in mind when we've had cancer and we feel we have options too. And has it helped you? What HRT are you on? So my medical team thought it was a good idea for me to start the HRT as soon as I wake up from surgery, because obviously with uh, surgically menopause, uh, your hormones drop off a cliff immediately. And they didn't think that was necessary. I remember walking down the road from one of my medical appointments and the doctor I've seen there at gynecologist said, well, you're quite young and the risks for you 
to die of a cardiovascular disease, heart disease, a fracture, if you don't do anything about your menopause really, are going to be as high as you perhaps dying from your BRCA1 mutation and more cancers. And that felt so debilitating and so awful. And actually, with hindsight, I thought that was a really, really strong message to give to a young patient. But he really wanted me to understand that an early onset menopause is difficult for our long-term health and we have to manage that. And it's one of the things so many women in my community really, really worry about. They think, I'm not on HRT. I'm in an early onset menopause. Am I going to get dementia? Will my bones break? Will I get cardiovascular problems later on in life? And what's really, really important to say is it does not need to be that way because we can do so many things every day to support our long-term health. And so I think instead of letting these messages worry us, it's good these messages are out there because it's the reality. We don't want to wash over reality. If there is a risk to us because we haven't got those hormones, we want to know about it. But in the same sentence, I want to know what I can do about it. And that's what that doctor never told me. And that's where my real quest and my real sort of, I just needed to know everything that I could do. And then when I got to speak to more people and more doctors, I thought I need to give up a home. And so I've then set up the podcast with it because I thought it's no good. I know all of this. I need everyone else to also know what their options are. And there is so much we can do from how we eat to how we move that would protect our bones. You have a very strong focus on meditation, yoga and nutrition to heal you. And you're a qualified menopause yoga teacher. So how is that different? What postures help with menopause symptoms? Lots. And it really depends. It's, so, it's quite incredible. I always think, wow, what, what do I need today? And so, for example, we have breathing techniques that can really help to cool the body. They're incredible. But when you think of your whole body as one thing, and that's how I love to see my whole body, not just, I've got hot flush, what can I do about it? Yes, you can use the cooling breath. But I'm also thinking I'm worried about my bone health and I know many people in my community are. So we think maybe we need to do some uh, pounding exercise, some weightlifting, some resistance exercise. But actually, for example, chronic stress over a long period of time can also have a negative impact on our bones and lead to brittle bones. So I know if I step onto the yoga mat to give my mind a little bit of a break, to maybe embark on a five, 10 minute meditation, to tap into my parasympathetic nervous system, to work on my stress response. 10 minutes a day, I'm not talking anymore. Free YouTube, there is so much out there. Then I know by doing that, I can help my bones even. And your muscles pulling on your bones increases bone density as well. It's not just about pounding the streets. Something like yoga increases bone density. There are so many different types of yoga. And so I run a couple of very dynamic classes. We push and lift our body weight all the time in our plants, in our chaturangas. We put so much weight onto our wrists, onto our feet and ankles. We stack our body that is amazing because we're working with that and resistance and we're trying to keep our body upright a lot of the time. So we're defying gravity. We are carrying all of our body weight on one leg sometimes. That's incredible. I don't even need to pick up any dumbbells. And then the other most amazing thing is, of course, we're balancing a lot in yoga. And so you can again look at this from two different ways. It can really channel your energy. When I've got brain fog, and at the moment in particular, I'm feeling I can't concentrate very well. I can't even finish an email. I'm all over the place, really. 
But a balancing exercise in yoga can really help me channel my focus. It can help me feel more dedicated. I block out everything that's going on because unless I focus on my balancing, I'm going to fall over. But the other thing that balancing does is it will help us have falls. So we worry about brittle bones because if we have a fall, we might break our bones. And, and so that is the worry, fair enough, fractures. But if you can prevent a fall in the first place, which we can do by having better balance, then that's also a benefit for our bones. And so I think when you really see your whole body as one and you stop thinking muscles, brain, hot flush, vaginal symptoms, everything sort of makes sense with yoga. And so I've kept coming back for it initially, mainly for my mental health. It was the only time in my week where I felt a little bit less anxious, a little bit less worried about the future. And my mind was going less back to what happened as being more present. I find that you have to be present in yoga because you have to concentrate on what you're doing. It's the one time that my brain switches off. As you say, if you're trying to balance or you're trying to do a what's for me quite a difficult pose, you can't be thinking about worries or your shopping list or anything else. You are absolutely in the moment. But last week I spoke to a lady who became a hiking leader in her breast cancer treatment. Another lady who quit her job as a lawyer and became a Pilates instructor. There are so many people who use exercise or moving to their benefit and it will have such an empowering effect on them that I don't think it needs to be yoga. It's just what made sense to me and resonates with me. As long as we can move this body, this house of ours, like all of our joints, they need a bit of moving, a bit of oiling. Our muscles need moving. And it's what you love doing because then you'll, you'll do it more. If you find the thing that you love and what works for you, then that's the key, isn't it? It's keeping doing it rather than saying, oh, I must do something that actually you don't find enjoyable. So maybe for anyone out there listening to us at the moment, they might think, actually, I haven't really found anything. I'm dragging myself to the gym twice a week. Ugh, I'm feeling a bit stiff. Joints are aching. I'm turning up to my classes, but it's not really everything that I was hoping for. Maybe it's time to sort of rediscover a little bit because I certainly know what filled my joy bucket a year ago or two years ago, or three years ago, isn't really doing it so much for me now. And things change and I change, but often... My habits don't change with who I have become. So often maybe sitting down and thinking, I'm going to try one new thing next month, Zumba dancing or I don't know, whatever. I love your advice of, is there something you haven't tried? You shouldn't dismiss things without trying them. As you say, it's like, oh, well, I might just go and do a, yeah, a Zumba class or I might go hiking tomorrow, something that you haven't done before. That also extends to all of our other medical options. Like I really am a true believer that we don't want to look back thinking I haven't left a stone unturned. The women I meet, they're really, really, really struggling with where they're at in their menopause. And it's then looking through methodically, what have they tried, what has worked and what is still there to try. And so often we have many conversations, for example, about antidepressants. And women say, I'm not depressed. I don't want to take them. I think my doctor just wants to fob me off. They're not first line treatment. But once you've had a cancer diagnosis, they can be really helpful for the right person. And they're prescribed in very small doses and they can really help with hot flushing and anxiety. And so it's allowing ourselves to perhaps try something and do something that we dismissed last month, last year. These are difficult processes, right? Because sometimes we have to change our mind. We have to say, actually, yeah, I always said no, but now I'm saying, let me reconsider. 
And that's what I want for all of us, that we open more doors and more windows so that we all feel we have more options. I want to get back to your events. You have both online and in-person events and your website, which obviously I'll put in the show notes, healthyholeme.com, is where everyone can find them and they can find amazing recipes and your yoga classes. Do you know what? There has been such a natural progression in this. Initially, I created Healthy Whole Me because I was on a quest to find the healthier, more wholesome version of myself post-cancer. And so I shared all of the recipes I cooked for myself, my family, breathing techniques, yoga. I hosted workshops with amazing guest speakers. And then I realised that women in particular with a cancer diagnosis in menopause are super under-supported and under-educated. And I thought, I can't believe no one else is really speaking about it. And I became really passionate about it. So it's moved on from Healthy Whole Me to I've set up a not-for-profit last year called Menopause and Cancer because we want to support all women who've had cancer who are in menopause. And so the new website is called menopauseandcancer.org, which is great. And we've got loads of resources on there for medical professionals, for doctors who I know often seek our services or the information we provide. We host the Menopause and Cancer podcast because every single expert that I've spoken to is so amazing. I want everyone to hear their voice. And often, you know, they've got contradicting information advice. And it's difficult to navigate that as a patient, but I think we need to know all of these opinions so that we can make up our own mind of what's right or wrong. And then I thought, how can we reach even more people? Because I thought it's no good just listening to a podcast if then you're still at home not knowing what to do next, because that's what happens. We have all this information available to us. It's free. It's amazing. And then I'm still there not knowing what I can do. And I think so many people are the same. So I've collaborated with loads of charities from Future Dreams House, who are a breast cancer charity, to Trexdog, who support young people in their 20s and 30s through cancer, with the Peaches Trust, with Breast Cancer Now, Macmillan. And with them, we run programs and workshops online and in person. Just to talk people through their options, because I won't shut up (laughs) talking about our options. And nor should you, because as you say, you are helping so many thousands of women and you are doing such a service to people. Because when it happened to you, you were like, well, I don't know anything, but I'm never going to allow this to happen to another woman. I'm going to make sure that other women do know. And what would you say as a final piece of advice to a woman struggling with her menopause? symptoms post a cancer diagnosis? I would say put two buckets in your hands. The bucket on your left hand is everything you can do yourself. Really look at if you can swap the chocolate bar for an apple a day and make really small changes. Do you move enough and do you have time where you can de-stress and look after your emotional health? And make sure that you put your hand into that bucket every day and you take something else out. And the other hand carries the bucket with the support that you can get from the outside people might be listening to this who might have been struggling for years. And this could be a good time to revisit the question, who can help them? Maybe that's going back to their GP and starting the conversation again, who can help me? Maybe that is being referred to a menopause specialist and waiting and sitting out the wait. Maybe that is phoning their specialist nurse again, if they're still under an oncologist, for example. Maybe that is joining our Facebook community and asking other women how they accessed help. And so I think maybe embarking on a second try, because I think a lot of women sit at home thinking, well, that's it now. I think that's just it. I think I'm going to feel a certain way and it's a trade-off for having had cancer. But maybe you can challenge yourself and think, 
I check my symptoms. I sit with myself. How am I really feeling? What is really impacting me? And would I like to feel better in a certain area? And then give it another go. The worst that can happen is that you won't feel much better. But the best that can happen is that you actually find some help and some solutions to your symptoms. And wouldn't that be just amazing? Thank you so much, Danny. You are an absolute inspiration. I really appreciate you coming and talking to me about this. Thank you, India. And thank you for picking up this not so much spoken about conversation. Thank you. Next time, I'm talking to my fourth inspirational author, Emma Kennedy, author, actress, former lawyer, brilliant cook, downright Renaissance woman. After being hospitalised with heart palpitations, she realised her menopause, which she thought was done and dusted, wasn't done with her yet. She decided, even with her family history of breast cancer, to go on a low dose of oestrogen, and it's changed her life. And how high cholesterol has meant her love affair with cheese and wine is finally over but it's opening up a brighter future. Though she does still feel the need to sniff the occasional cheese sandwich. If you want to be more orca, head to bemoreorcapod.co.uk. For all the latest on what's coming up, I've cherry-picked articles to keep you informed so you don't have to sift through the news. And become a member. Tell me what matters to you and what questions you want answering. Help shape the pod and help other women just like you so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. And if you've liked this episode, please subscribe, as it helps with those pesky algorithms and lets others find us and become part of our pod. And follow me at b.more.orca for my no-filter menopause diary. Listener.